Specialty Story, session number 97. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and as always, I'm excited that you are here. If this is your first time joining me on this podcast, thank you for taking the time to listen. If you are a returning listener, thanks for being here again. A couple weeks ago, we had Dr. Jonesco on the podcast talking about sports medicine. Now, Dr. Jonesco is a internal medicine doctor turned sports medicine doctor. And this week, we have Dr. Waite, who is a physical medicine and rehabilitation doctor turned sports medicine specialist. She is in an academic setting, like our guest from a couple weeks ago. And we'll get a little bit of a different angle this time because of her background as a physiatrist. So let's go ahead and jump in and find out when Dr. Brandy Waite became interested in sports medicine. I didn't even know that PMNR existed until maybe oh, the summer after my second year in medical school. <clears throat> so it's re- relatively small specialty on the West Coast. But I, um, some of my girlfriends and I, after we took step one of the boards, were sitting around and talking about different specialty fields and looking through a book that listed all the different specialties and some of the nuances of them. And one of my friends said, oh, this sounds like you and was reading about PM&R. And I was like, oh, that's not real. That doesn't even exist. You must be making that. You must be making it up. Right. And, and, and sure enough, it did exist. It just didn't exist at my institution. And so I did a little bit more digging and found that it was, you know, a potentially great, great fit for me. I thought I was going to go into obstetrics and gynecology actually at the time. And PM&R ended up being a a, a wonderful diversion from that. <laughs> That's a very uh, big 180 there. What yes. was it about what she was reading that was like, hey, like this is you? Well, you know, it talked a little bit. I, I have a background as um, a, very much of a background in fitness and dance and, and, and things of that nature. And actually, one of the things I really loved about OBGYN was women's health and the focus on preventive health and care. And when she was reading about physical medicine and rehabilitation, it talked about more about your patients and their function, their function in their day-to-day life than necessarily um, their illnesses or or um, medication treatments, but more about how you can make people more functional, getting from point A to point B, whether they're professional athletes or people just, you know, who have had a stroke or a spinal cord injury. And that really spoke to me and the loves that I have. I'm really, you know, I'm very passionate about people being able to live full lives. And I feel like function and activity are a part of that. So that really spoke, really spoke to me. And it was the way that it described it almost as an intersection of neurology, orthopedics, neurosurgery, and psychiatry. Um, And I really uh, thought I kind of liked all of those things. Being a second-year med student, I didn't really know that that much about any of them. Um, But for the reasons that I was going into OBGYN, sort of for women's health and preventative care, and, you know, I did like doing procedures. I wasn't necessarily married to the idea of being a surgeon. Um, And so it just was, you know, kind of an interesting fit. I I didn't completely sign up 
you know, sign on the dotted line at that time, I had to do a little bit more, um, you know, digging into what the specialty was because I honestly had never even heard of it before. Yeah. What traits do you think lead to someone being a good PM&R doc? You have to like working with other people. Physical medicine and rehab is definitely a specialty of team, a team care approach. So the physician, the physiatrist or the PM&R doctor is the leader of the care team, but we work very closely with physical therapists, occupational therapists, nursing staff on an inpatient rehab setting to really address all of the rehabilitation needs for our patients, like learning how to dress themselves again, learning how to walk again, learning how to speak or swallow again. And um, those types of collaborations are very much present in just about every subspecialty of physical medicine and rehabilitation. We work very closely with other specialties as well. So being um, comfortable working on a team that will have additional input with you as the guider is, I think, very, very important. Um, some of us do a lot of procedures. Some of us don't do any procedures. So your your love for being able to do procedures can either be completely fulfilled or completely you know, or completely don't have to do any of them. So that's not necessarily a piece of it, but it can be. So um, within our our overall field, the subspecialties can have um, very different levels of procedural um, uh, procedural uh, parts of their um, treatment plans. Um, so I happen to like doing procedures. So that that part worked really well for me. And of course, a, a love of ne- neurology and orthopedics. Um, would go very well for it because that's a, a lot of the the groups that we overlap with and the um, problems that we overlap with. Now you further subspecialized down into musculoskeletal as a PM&R doc. What was the draw for that? Yeah, so I, I did a, a fellowship in sports medicine, and um, I, you know, it just ended up being an, a natural fit for the things that I liked outside of medicine. Um, having been, you know, as I mentioned, very into dance and, and fitness and, and sports, I, I really liked the, um, you know, the aspect of taking care of athletes, dancers, athletes, people who are pursuing different, um, very physical endeavors as a, as a piece of maintaining their, their health. So that part, and I like to do, I like to doing procedures and the folks that do sports medicine do a lot of injections and other types of procedures. So that was a, a really good fit for me. When you first started getting some exposure to PM&R after learning about it, was there a, a point where you were like, well, maybe OB is still something I should be doing? Or were you pretty much on the PM&R train? There were two things that absolutely sold me. One was I had to look um, outside of my institution to do a rotation in in physical medicine and rehab. And so at the time I was studying at UCSF, I was in medical school there, University of California, San Francisco. And I did a rotation at Stanford. And the doctor that I rotated with was an outpatient um, kind of musculoskeletal specialist. Actually, he was double boarded in rheumatology and physical medicine and rehab. Mm. And he was prescribing pool therapy for people with back pain and lower extremity problems. And I had never seen another physician prescribe pool exercise as a way to, you know, deal with these problems. And in my former life as a dancer and fitness instructor, I actually used to teach water aerobics during the <laughs> summer times. And so I thought, oh my gosh, this, this makes so much sense. Like I know it from the other part of my life and I've seen it help. And here's a physician that's actually using it for therapeutic benefit. So that was like, a, that was like the universe all, you know, serendipitously aligned everything for me at that moment. 
And I had a very good friend who was an OBGYN intern around the time of my third, third year of medical school. And when I was rotating at the end of my third year of medical school with her, she said, you know, if OBGYN is the thing that you love the most, then that is the thing that you absolutely have to do. But if there's anything else that you like as much, you need to do the other thing because (laughs) this is really, really hard. Not that I wanted to shy away from things that are hard, but, you know, OBGYN is a very, you know, it's a surgical residency and it has certain demands on it. And if you don't really know that you love being in the operating room or really love being in the OR, then sometimes a surgical residency isn't necessarily the best residency. And it wasn't necessarily the surgery I liked so much about OB. It was, you know, uh, other parts of it. And so I thought, well, I think I kind of like this other thing just as much. And thank God that, you know, she, she gave me that insight because then it really allowed me to focus on, on finding out more about other rotations in physical medicine and rehabilitation. And I'm one of those lucky people that really like my job and my life match very well together. So I'm really happy with that choice. When you first started exploring this, Did you look into the other routes of getting into sports medicine, whether through family practice or internal medicine? I did not like primary care. I'll just be, I will just be blunt about it. My experiences in medical school, I knew I did not want to be in primary care. And so I I knew I was going to do a specialty. Okay. Um, And so OBGYN was the one that I kind of liked the most, actually maybe because it had a kind of a little bit of primary care in it, but I just felt like, um, I didn't really like having to be the gatekeeper for everything else. And I didn't, I didn't, I just didn't love my rotations on internal medicine. It just didn't float my boat. It wasn't specifically for me. So, um, sports medicine, actually, I went into PMNR, not even necessarily knowing that I wanted to do a sports medicine fellowship. It was the, the overall function for like general musculoskeletal care and the rehabilitative aspects for people who had had neurologic and orthopedic injuries that really kind of spoke to me. And then as I was doing more in PM&R, I noticed, oh, this, this subspecialty aspect of it is even more exciting to me than the rest of it. And so that's how I ended up doing it. I don't think I would have. Some people I think don't know, especially on the West Coast, physical medicine and rehab is a relatively smaller specialty. So I meet people all the time that say, oh, I never even knew about PM&R as a way to go into non-operative sports medicine. And actually, I kind of like the things that PM&R does, like having sort of the neurology and orthopedics better than I liked general family medicine or general internal medicine um, or pediatrics or, you know, emergency medicine, all these different fields that non-operative sports medicine doctors come from. So I just think that finding out, knowing a little bit more about your primary specialty and knowing that that's the one that you like the most with a little bit of sports medicine on the side. I'm very lucky that I work at a place where really all, pretty much all I do other than a, occasional weekend coverage of, of our inpatient unit is outpatient musculoskeletal and sports medicine. And not a lot of people have that. Most people do some general um, PM&R as well as whatever they subspecialize in. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned it's relatively small on the West Coast. I was digging into some website stuff and and people are searching for like physiatry school, not knowing that physiatrists are physicians and you go to medical school to become one. So it's, it's interesting that it's, it's still relatively unknown, even though it's been around for a long time now. It has, you know, since the PM&R came about basically out of 
um, a specialty, uh, other specialties, really caring for um, war veterans after World War II. Mm-hmm. So a, a lot of people were coming back with, with disabilities and their primary care physicians not really knowing how to, you know, certain ones, you know, figured out this is how you care for an amputee. This is how you care for someone that's had a spinal cord injury, you know, beyond just the immediate care of stabilizing them, but how do they live their lives and move forward with being a contributing member of society or contributing member to their family, things of that nature. And so that's really where PM&R had its, had its roots. Yeah. So as a sports medicine specialist, as, as a, a physiatrist, sports medicine doc, what sorts of patients and disabilities and diseases are you seeing day in and day out? I see a lot of people with knee arthritis and knee problems. That's probably the number one thing that we see. I mean, already today, I think it's only, you know, one o'clock in the afternoon and I probably did seven knee injections this morning of various things. So we see a lot of patients that have knee problems. Um, And in my practice, I see people from, you know, within the past week, I've seen professional athletes. And earlier today, I saw a woman who's an adult with cerebral palsy who has, you know, lived her life relatively ambulatory with a bit of a, a walking or gait abnormality. So she has a knee problem because her alignment isn't great. So I was treating her knee because of that, which is very different than say a professional soccer player when I'm treating their, you know, knee knee issues. And so um, we see knee problems, shoulder problems, basically any problem in, in my practice that is affecting a joint that's not part of the skull or the spine. Though many sp- PM&R doctors do treat spine care. We have a separate sports and spine clinics at our office, and I just happen to only work on the sports side. When patients are coming to you, do they already have a diagnosis and you're just there to inject and, and follow up, or are you trying to figure out what's going on? Both. Both things happen. So sometimes people come see me and they'll say, I've seen five doctors and nobody can tell me what's going on. I'm hoping maybe you can figure it out. Um, and tell me. And so we do a little bit of investigative, you know, investigative medicine, so to speak, to really figure out what's going on, taking a really good history, listening for nuances, and doing an, a, a physical exam, a very a strong physical exam that kind of combines elements of a neurologic exam, an orthopedic exam, and a general exam. And then other times I see people and their primary care doctor says, Yep, they've got knee arthritis. They don't want surgery. They want to talk to you about the different types of injections or other treatments that might help their knee arthritis that are not surgery. And so then it's a very different conversation than I would have with someone who says, yeah, my knee hurts and I don't know why. And it's hurt for three weeks or six months and somebody needs to figure it out. What does call look like for you? Um, for me, we I had two types of call. So for us, uh, the group that I'm a part of, We've got a lot of subspecialists. We have some general PM&R doctors that are in our group. We have some neuromuscular disease specialists, some pediatric rehab specialists. But we have an inpatient uh, acute rehabilitation unit that takes care of people that are new stroke, new spinal cord injury, new traumatic brain injury, or other problems that affect their ability to sort of function and um, have good emotion or self-care. And so it's about a 20-bed inpatient rehab hospital suite as part of our overall hospital. And so I take call once, uh, maybe about six times a year over the weekends. And I'm on call from home from 5 p.m. to 8 a.m. During the course of the week that I'm on call, I take call for a week at a time. And our residents get the first phone call from the hospital if there's an issue with one of those patients. And if the resident can't figure out what to do, 
or they need some help, then they call me to back them up. And then on Saturdays and Sundays, we actually go in and make rounds to see all the patients while the, the doctor who normally does that has the weekend off. So we all, all of the doctors in our group share in that call. So it gets the whole week, um, the whole year of weekends covered. What was the decision algorithm for you to be in an academic setting versus going out to the community? Um, well, it certainly wasn't financially based. <laughs> I can tell you that. <laughs> in general, at academic uh, institutions, you make a little bit less money than they do. Just a little bit. In the community, just a little bit. <laughs> so it's funny because our, our residents will graduate and will take a job in the community. And though I've been in practice um, 14 years, almost 15 years now, Um, they will immediately be making (laughs) more money than I do (laughs) as a fellowship trained person. So it wasn't the money, but you know, I'm not going broke. My loans are all paid off 10, you know, after 10 years, all my student loans were paid. So, you know, I own a home, I can take care of my family. I travel a lot. All those, those things are okay. Um, but I really, I liked the idea of continuing to be engaged in, um, education and staying up on the, the latest things. I, when I did my rotations with people that were in private practice, I saw or in the community, there was not, not as much focus on kind of keeping up on what's the latest and greatest thing that's come out in the past year or six months or two years. Um, it was a little bit more of a struggle for them to be able to get out and go to spend time at conferences to hear about the, the newest things and, and to collaborate with other people in our field or to even hear what they were doing. And I just really liked that, you know, I I am a lifetime learner. I really like being able to continue. I mean, any physician really has to be because you can't only just do what you learned in medical school and residency because five years or 10 years down the line, you could be completely out of touch with what's going on. But staying at an academic medical center, you really will stay, stay up on those types of things. And so I liked that. And I liked teaching as well. And I thought that my presence as a teacher in a residency program in medical school might mean a little bit more as a woman and a woman from an underrepresented minority field. I didn't see as I was coming through my training, anyone that looked like me. And so I felt like my presence at an institution on that level might help expose some people to our field that might not otherwise look at it. If you don't see somebody that looks like you in a field, you don't necessarily know that that field is really open to you. Yeah. That's one thing. You don't get paid as much, but you usually get more vacation than you do if you're in the community. So more time off to travel and to go to good conferences. Yeah. Do you feel like you have enough time for family outside of medicine? I do. I feel like, you know, you, you figure out how to do the balance. I think many people, when they first go into to practice, you know, you don't learn about, you know, the billing and the back office stuff and rereading things and, you know, answering the phone calls that come in. So there's always a in any field of medicine, there's a, a kind of a curve of figuring out how to go from, you know, being the student or the trainee to being, you know, the one, you know, that the buck stops here and you've got to take care of everything. But I feel like I have um, certainly enough time on, you know, I'm only on call six weekends a month. So it's not like I have an overburdened, you know, weekend call schedule. Now in sports medicine, I do end up spending more time covering football games, basketball games, things of that nature. So that takes additional time that's in addition to my my regular call schedule with the rest of my department. Um, and I'm married, I have two kids, and um, luckily I have a husband and a family that's very helpful. It would be diff- very difficult to do as a single parent, I think, but any field of medicine, it's not different than any other 
any other field of medicine. But I think you just you learn how to be um, efficient with your your time and what's required of your your documentation and things of that nature. You know, you see a certain amount of patients. You have to write their notes, finish their notes. Their notes have to say the important things that the insurance company can use to generate a proper bill. You figure out how to be efficient with that more and more as time goes on. And hopefully with good mentors, they can tell you how to do it relatively quickly so you're not just mired down in it. But on average, I see anywhere from 15 to 22 patients a day, um, depending on how many new patients or longer procedures I have to do. And um, it's rare, you know, usually my last patient is scheduled at 4.15 or 4.30, and it's rare that I'm staying in the office beyond six o'clock to work on patient care charting responsibilities. Now, in addition to my regular patients, I'm also a fellowship director and I'm the director of our clinic and I'm our section chief for sports medicine. So I have other administrative and leadership responsibilities that I have to take care of that put a little bit more of a dent um, in things. But um, those are just things you learn how to balance or maybe you don't see quite as many patients one week. You have a half day that's dedicated to administrative time as opposed to patient care time. And that's something that kind of works in with an academic um, physician as well. You have other responsibilities within the university and within the hospital. And so usually you're not really seeing patients five days a week, all day, every day. You might have a half a day here or a full day there that's designated as your administrative time. And you take that time to handle the other administrative issues that you have going on. What's the most involved procedure that you're doing? Hmm. Well, probably we, I do a lot of ultrasound guided procedures now. And so maybe like an ultrasound guided injection into the hip joint. It's a relatively deep joint. It's hard to do by feel. So some some places they'll do it with x-ray guidance and some of my colleagues use x-ray guidance to do it. I use ultrasound guidance to do that. In physical medicine and rehab, there's also nationally just more and more of an interest in regenerative medicine, which is basically using cells and biologic materials to treat diseases. So like stem cell injections or platelet-rich plasma injections. And so we don't do stem cell injections at Davis currently in our sports medicine office, but we do some platelet-rich plasma injections where we might take the patient's blood, spin it in a centrifuge, take out the platelet cells, which have certain growth factors that are thought to be helpful for certain things, and then use the ultrasound to target re-injecting those cells back into the same patient to help a certain problem. So that's probably the most, um, I don't know, the, it's like a multi-step mm. type of thing. Um, but also a lot of physical medicine rehab doctors do, if they do an interventional spine or a pain fellowship, might be doing like epidural steroid injections for back pain or injections into the facet joints or zygopophyseal joints for back or neck pain. Some docs do um, um, EMG and nerve conduction studies. So basically an, an electrical study of the extremities or face to, to measure different nerve function to see if there's nerve damage. I used to do those. I just don't do them anymore in my practice. After medical school, what does the training path look like to become a sports medicine PM&R doc? So uh, the physical medicine and, re and rehabilitation residencies, four-year residency, some residencies have all four years that are there at the same spot. Some residencies have, you do your internship somewhere else and you just do your three years of PM&R at the PM&R site. Um, that's how it was. I did my residency at Stanford. And so I did my internship elsewhere. I actually did a transitional or rotating internship, but you could do a transitional internship or just a preliminary medicine year. Um, and then to your, your PM&R residency or some of the residencies have them all 
combined. Um, and then you do your three years of, of PM&R. And then I did a sports medicine fellowship, a one-year sports medicine fellowship after I finished my residency program. How competitive is the specialty? Um, it's getting more and more competitive, actually. I think um, at least we've noticed that the general, I happen to sit on our residency selection committee, um, we've noticed that we're getting more and more applications each year and that um, the board scores are kind of getting higher and higher. I think in general, it's not as competitive as, say, you know, dermatology or urology or but of the um, kind of medical subspecialties that people can can go into, um, it's becoming more more competitive. But there are still some smaller programs in different different places that are excellent programs that might not be as well known. Where as long as you are um, very adequate in what you do, you don't have to be at the top of your class in order to s- secure a residency spot. It depends kind of on certain locations are more you know like with any residency getting in in like, you know, West Coast spots or East Coast spots tend to be more selective mm-hmm. or more competitive than things that are in the middle of the country. Yeah. What makes for someone to be a competitive applicant? Um, for us, so we have a relatively small residency program. We only have, um, we only have three residents per year. And so for our program, we want to make sure that people look like they are very well self-motivated and get in and are very collegial. So if people um, have demonstrated that they work really well in groups or have been on other projects that are related to PM&R, that can be helpful. Having advanced clerkships in neurology, orthopedics, physical medicine and rehab, or even psychiatry, if you think that the traumatic brain injury is a part of, of PM&R that you're very interested in, having advanced clerkships in those other um those other subspecialties that are related to PM&R can be very helpful. Um, we like to see if people are thinking about going into sports medicine, if they've done some, you know, some volunteer work with, you know, helping to do pre-participation physicals at local high schools or colleges, um, have, if they've done any, you know, shadowing with another sports medicine doctor. But getting into residency, many people don't know yet that they want to do a, a fellowship. So that part is not as important as just, you know, having good letters of recommendation that show that you're a hard worker and getting those letters of recommendation from fields that are close to physical medicine and rehab, so neurology, PM&R itself, um, or elsewhere. And if your institution does not have PM&R, like where I was in medical school, we didn't have a department or a division of physical medicine and rehab. The fact that I went out and found two outside places to do rotations. And I knew I had to do well at those places in order to get letters of recommendation. Those are things that will be very helpful to your application. For an osteopathic student listening to this, what is their uh, role in the PM&R world? Is there a negative bias towards them? I don't think there's a negative bias, actually. We, we have a lot of DOs um, in physical medicine and rehab. Right now, I mean, I just had, you know, a mentoring session with one of our uh, DO faculty members who, you know, has recently joined our faculty. And um, a lot of DOs, actually PM&R is a very good fit because they learn a lot about manual medicine. And a a lot of PM&R is kind of like, you know, people's, you know, bodily sort of musculoskeletal dysfunctions. And manual medicine is a great way of treating that for some people. So I think that it's definitely open. Certain, Certain residencies 
um, may have a, you know, like a screening and selection process coming from the different DO schools, just in general, just like any medical school, some, some schools have a stronger reputation for providing, you know, stronger students. So if you come, you know, from a, a DO school and you really want to get um, good rotations, I think that's very, that's very possible. We have had, you know, I think probably at least at any given time of the nine residents that we have, at least we've got one or two DOs at any, at any given time. You are a sports medicine trained PM&R doc. What other opportunities are there to subspecialize after your residency? So some people will do a, um, a traumatic brain injury um, fellowship. Um, which, you know, focuses on the treatment and management of patients with, you know, mild, moderate, severe traumatic brain injury. Concussion is considered a mild traumatic brain injury. And that is like, you know, a very hot topic in medicine and the media and the community right now. So um, some, we, of course, you cover it in sports medicine fellowship as well because of sports concussion, but the TBI fellowships will, will cover it as well. So there's that. Some people will go into pediatric rehabilitation. And so you do, uh, there's a pediatric fellowship that's two years and, um, to subspecialize in the types of, um, debilitating diseases that affect primarily children, certain muscular dystrophies, cerebral palsy, things of that nature. So there's a little bit of overlap with pediatrics there. And, um, some people go on to do pain management fellowships, which, um, Basically, anesthesia docs or PM&R docs are usually the ones that go into these pain fellowships where you learn about how to do different medication management and, you know, fluoroscopic or ultrasound guided procedures to help decrease pain from multiple different sources. And let me see what other there are. There's one fellowship in ACGME accredited fellowship in neuromuscular disease which happens to be at UC Davis because we have a fantastic neuromuscular disease department. So people who are particularly interested in muscular dystrophy, certain types of neurologic neuromuscular um, uh, diseases and the rehabilitation can do a fellowship in that. Very cool. What do you wish the primary care docs knew about what you're doing day in and day out to help you do your job and help their patients? I, well, I think probably the biggest thing is even knowing what PM&R does. I mean, even within our own hospital system, we have a department <laughs> of physical medicine and rehab, and still there are people that don't know what we do or don't know that there are different subspecialties. So many people think that PM&R is, is synonymous with pain management, mm. and it's not. We actually have a separate pain management department that's housed in the Department of Anesthesiology. There are some PM&R docs that work there, but you can't send you know, necessarily a a person to a general PM&R doctor and expect them to be able to do like a cervical epidural steroid injection, right? you know, something along those lines. So I think understanding that even within uh, a practice, there is some breadth of, um, of uh, expertise. And also that um, physiatrists can be, you know, a, a very integral part of a sports medicine practice. So I think sometimes people, you know, historically you think of orthopedics being, you know, sports medicine or internal medicine doing sports medicine, but PM&R with, you know, what we learn in general residency about, you know, spine and nerves and the musculoskeletal system, it's actually an incredibly good fit for sports medicine types of issues. So, and I mean, it's, it's great here at our institution because, you know, people sort of do they do they do know that 
part of it. But in general, I think that's that's really, really the thing that we wish more people would know, just that we exist and exist as a really comprehensive care provider that helps your patients to do better in their day-to-day function. I really think of a lot of what I do is recommending how people can be more physically active and not just for the sake of sports, but for the sake of managing hypertension and diabetes and the, you know all the different comorbidities that exist because of being overweight in society. When your knee hurts really bad and you're overweight, it's hard to exercise. You end up gaining more weight than you have more problems. So really using the physiatrist as a helper to help treat other chronic diseases by using exercise and physical activity. What other specialties are you working closely with? Orthopedic surgery, probably the closest, at least in my in my subspecialty. We've got you know th- three surgeons and three non-operative sports medicine doctors that all see patients in the same suite. So if I see someone that clearly needs their ACL repaired and doesn't need injections or th- surgery I, or injections or therapy, I just walk down the hall and say, "Hey, this guy needs surgery. Can you come see him instead of me?" And vice versa. Other surgeons outside of just sports medicine, you know, our orthopedic spine providers, our neurosurgical spine and brain injury providers, neurology for stroke management. Um, Those are probably the folks that we overlap with the most. Rheumatology, of course, because they take care of patients that have joint problems and joint diseases. So we have some overlap with with rheumatology. And uh, those are probably the ones we align with the most, um, most frequently. Of course, physical therapy and all the different therapies. They're not physicians, but they're a part of our team. Mm-hmm. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into sports medicine? There's nothing that's really particular to sports medicine. I think in general about medicine, I wish that I had known more about the, I don't know, the the, the billing and argument issues. These are all the things you don't talk about very much because <laughs> they turn people off from from medicine. But the faster you learn about them and figure out your ways around them, then the easier, the easier it is for you. I think also I am, have always been a very self-confident person. And so I I think I've seen other people come through that aren't as self-confident as I am, and they can be very unsure about what their contribution to the team can be. And so I wish there are more people that would, you know, take, um, you know, be very proud and um, confident in the knowledge that they gain and how they can use that to help help their patients. That's one of the things I tend to share a lot with particularly some of the female medical students that I work with or other um, trainees who, you know, might not have the self-confidence in general. They're incredibly bright, incredibly smart, and they tend not to always share what they feel like is going on for fear of being reprimanded or, you know, something else like that. But that that's one thing that I, I, I never struggled with, but it's one thing that I see people struggling with. And I wish they knew, you know, you are, you are here, you are smart enough to make a good contribution, be confident to make a contribution and also be humble enough though, to learn from the people who are s- setting the scene for you. What do you like the most about being a pm sports medicine duck? Uh, I love doing injections. I really do. <laughs> you like poking people with needles. I do. I like poking people with needles. When I had my two kids, actually, I had a lot of my patients say, oh, no, are you going to come back to work? And I was like, well, it's generally frowned upon if you poke your children with needles. So in order to get that fixed, I'm going to have to keep coming back to work. Um, no, I mean, I think that's part of it. I also really enjoy... Um, I really enjoy explaining what's going on for someone. Like the, the light that goes off. Like sometimes I'll 
see people and they've had knee arthritis forever, but nobody actually like went over their x-ray with them and explained to them why doing exercise is important. You know, exercise kind of hurts, but why, you know, building your muscles like a brace from the inside out could be helpful for treating your knee arthritis. And so I, I, I love that interaction of helping someone learn the things that they can do for themselves. So they're not reliant on their physician for everything. That part of it, I really, really love. Like I love having, helping people get from, you know, a couch to 5k. I, I mean, obviously with my professional athletes, I love helping them, you know, do their incredible, you know, feats of physical activity. But I also really love one, one of my favorite patients was a little old lady who really wanted to go to the um, inauguration when President Obama was elected the first time. She was an older black woman who had lived through, you know, a, a segregation and, and a lot of things. And she never thought she'd see a, a, a president. And she had really bad, horrible knee arthritis. She really needed surgery. And we did some procedures that, that helped her be able to go. And she came back. And she had bought me like pins and she's like, I don't know what your political affiliations are, but I was so happy to be able to go. Like, I never thought I'd see this in my life. And what you did for me allowed me to participate in this very, you know, wonderful experience. And I hear that with people like my son's wedding is coming up. I want to be able to dance at my son's wedding and my knee is killing me. I haven't been able to dance it you know, five years. Is there something you can do for me? So helping people to be able to make these milestones and, and participate fully in their lives um, is really one of the things that I, I, I love being able to facilitate that for people. What do you like the least besides charting? Besides charting. <laughs> charting isn't the worst. It's arguing with insurance companies that don't want to pay for an MRI or a procedure that I really think would help my patient. That's the, probably the part that I hate the most. And there are some insurance companies, it's great. It's easy to work. You know, they just kind of read my notes. And other times it's like, it doesn't matter what I've written down. They're always going to deny, you know, whatever treatment or test that I want. And only if you call back and schedule a, you know, a conference with the, you know, physician. So it takes additional time out of your day, which you don't really have. That part of it is the part that I hate the most. That was just Everything in the news. That was just in the news recently, wasn't it? Like the the company getting sued because they didn't even review anything. They would just deny right. everything right right they away. Just, yeah, de- deny it straight across the top, and then they say, "Oh, you can appeal the denial. <laughs> you can set a time for your physician to call in." <sighs> and I'm like, "Are you kidding? Like, I'm trying to see patients all day, so it took time out of being able to see other patients, which then lowers the access of you know people have to wait longer for an appointment because if I've got to take." 20 minutes to take this phone call. That's 20 minutes. I can't be seeing somebody else that needs an injection or needs to talk about losing the weight or things like that. So that, that is the single th- I mean, there's always little things like, Oh gosh, we, you know, there are always little things in any job. No, no job is perfect, but that's yeah. the one thing. If I could do away with that, I mean, I love my job anyway. I'll still keep fighting that fight, but that's the one thing that, that irritates me the most. I don't mind patients that are you know, difficult to deal with because you just learn, you can help some people. You can't help everyone. And once you're over having to, you know, sort of fix everything for everyone, which no doctor can do, I just know here's my wealth of expertise and knowledge. If you'd like to use it and try to make yourself feel better, then let's go. And if you don't want to do any of the things that I recommend, then you don't have to. And I hope that you have a nice day and that you get better and, you know, just kind of moving on to the next thing. So those, those parts, I don't mind. It's when I can't get what I know would be helpful. That is what steams me. For somebody interested in sports medicine going through the PM&R path, do you see any major changes coming to the specialty that that they should be aware of to maybe 
they either second guess their decision or they're even more excited? Um, I don't see any major major changes coming. I think in general, over the past five years, PM&R sports medicine has been more and more accepted. They, you know, it was only, uh, I don't know, maybe 11 years ago that PM&R doctors were allowed. There's a, um, a subspecialty board exam that you can take. So after you take your regular board exams for PM&R, internal medicine, family medicine, whatever you're doing, if you do a fellowship, you can sit for the sports medicine boards, the non-operative sports medicine boards. And it was only 11 years ago that PM&R docs were allowed to start sitting for that exam. So there were not a lot of fellowships that allowed PM&R doctors to join them because if you have a fellowship, you want your fellow to go on to be able to take the board exam. So um, I think what I'd like to see, there there are still you know only 20 or less accredited PM&R sports medicine fellowships in the country which we have one of them at UC Davis, but I would love to see more of that. So it can be very competitive getting us a, a fellowship just because there aren't as many spots for PM&R doctors as there are for internal medicine, family medicine doctors. But a lot of those fellowships are now kind of opening their doors to PM&R doctors, which hadn't been before. And I've seen even a shift in that over the past five years. So it seems like there are being more and more opportunities as opposed to less and less. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be in the same spot? Oh, yeah, for sure. I don't think there's anything else that I'd like to do as much. I mean, unless somebody could have, you know, taught me how to sing and dance and you know, be <laughs> on stage <laughs> somewhere. Besides being on Broadway. I right. Besides being on Broadway. But you don't get to poke people with needles on Broadway. So yeah. really, <laughs> I still I still think I'd have I'd, I'd do my job. Yeah. I, I have you to know. ask, what do you what is it about poking people with needles that just <laughs> turns you on? It's not. Well, one of the things is, you know, people a lot of times when I do an injection, people walk out of the room feeling better than when they walked in. And I love, I love that. Like I immediately helped you, you know, you immediately got better. And so that is part of it that I really like. And then, you know, it's just, you know, there are certain, it's a, the, the, the steps that you go through kind of, you know, your one through 10 steps that you go through about doing something I've done so many of them. And I, a lot of people are nervous about getting injections and, I feel like I've kind of developed a way to put people relatively at ease. And so I don't want to, you know, like to toot your own horn, but I'm pretty good at giving injections. And, and so you like to do the things that you're, that you're good at. And I enjoy it. And some of my patients laugh. They're like, oh, well, if somebody has to poke you with the needle, you want it to be somebody that likes poking you with a needle because you know, they practiced more and they've done whatever. And so it's really though, I, I, I like to, I, I know the improvement that it can give people and, you know, people have to choose it. Not everybody wants an injection. And I certainly don't try to push it on people because there are, you know, potential for side effects or complications, things of that nature. But, you know, sometimes I see people, they're like, oh, nobody told me I could get an injection for this particular type of pain. And yeah, I can't even do my therapy exercises because my pain is so bad. So I know I need therapy, but without the injection, I can't even do it. And so I, I really see it as a means to being able to let people lead fuller lives. And so that is one of the reasons why I like to do it. Any last words of wisdom for the medical student or resident out there thinking about sports medicine, either through any any path to sports medicine, but specifically through PMNR? I think the, the number one thing that I like to remind people is you have to do your primary residency first. And so if you're so focused on what your subspecialty will be, sometimes you miss some of the learning opportunities that you can get along the way that end up helping you be a better physician overall in general. 
And a lot of times I see patients, they come to me, they've been referred for a specific sports medicine injury. And I'm like, you have this whole other problem that's going on that, yeah, I can treat sports medicine, but somehow nobody has realized that you have, you know, this other issue that really needs to be addressed. And so, um, and sometimes as people are going through your training, I think especially with sports medicine, because it, I don't know, it has a connotation of, you know, you're kind of like treating jocks and treating athletes. And, you know, do you think that those people are like better than other people, which is not the truth because in sports medicine, you end up actually treating people that have a lot of disability. But I think sometimes if people are so focused trainees, if they're so focused on like getting their fellowship that they don't do a good job in the other things that they have to learn in order to get there, like, oh, I know I'm not going to do brain injury, so I'm not, I'm not going to do an, as much reading for this, or I'm not going to be as engaged in clinic because this is not really what I want to do. That will shoot you in the foot every time because you've got you've to really understand the basics of where you're coming from, your main specialty. And you're, the attending physicians that are working with you in clinic, they know when you're not engaged and you're not going to get a good evaluation from them if you are not engaged in what their specialty is. So you don't have to fake that that's what you want to do, that you say, Hey, I want to go into sports medicine, but I can't wait to learn all this other stuff that I need to know along the way. And that I think is, is something that people need to understand more. They'll be more successful down the line in sports medicine and in getting a good fellowship if they've worked hard in all of their rotations. I'd assume that that potentially could hurt them even on the residency interview trail. If, if everything in an application is exuding sports medicine and the residency program knows that, hey, you're going to have to do a lot of ICU work and deal with spinal cord injury right. at our program. You're not going to be happy here. And so we're not going to want you. Exactly. I've seen people do that. And I, you know, as the sports medicine doc, especially, I always caution them. I'm like, you know, I, when, I, when I did my residency, I actually did nine, nine months of inpatient spinal cord injury, which yep. is like unheard of. It was almost a spinal cord <laughs> fellowship. But I actually, I loved spinal cord injury. Like, you would think that that's the opposite of sports medicine, you know, but it really, I, I found that there was a lot of overlap. And I think the reason that I ended up doing, doing well and getting a, a fellowship is because I could get very strong. You know, I was just a good team player and I, I learned all that stuff. And we see people coming in and they're like, oh, yep, I just want to do sports. I want to do sports. I want to do sports. And our residency program director is like, well, you're going to have to do a lot of other rotations besides sports. And if that's the only thing that you're excited about, it's going to be hard for you to get through residency. So, which is why I think some people do better going through internal medicine or family medicine or PM&R. Like I would have died going through an internal medicine residency to get to sports medicine. Like I, I did not like managing hypertension. I did not, I did not like any of that that stuff they did. So PM&R was like, you know, I liked it first. And then I realized, oh, this is a great way to do sports medicine. But for people who really like musculoskeletal and, and, and body sort of functions and like learning, you know, the way to make your arm work best and your leg work best and those types of things, I think the pathway through PM&R is actually a more interesting pathway to people that have those you know, those kind of things interest them more than someone going through family medicine or internal medicine. But if you love primary care, then that's definitely the way to go. But if you don't, there's another way to do non-operative sports medicine. All right. So there you have it. Again, Dr. Brandy Waite and her journey to academic sports medicine through her PM&R path. I hope this was helpful for you. Shed some light on the journey to sports medicine and what you can expect in the future. 
I hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. 